Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Thank you, Deidre. Thank you, Kyler. You can, yes, be seated. I've been trying to give you all like stage directions all morning and you just keep beating me to it, but that's okay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, if th those that don't know me, my name is Chaz. Um, I am one of the pastors here at Christ City Church, although I am not typically one of the preaching pastors here at, church, at Christ City Church. Um, our lead pastor, Jeremy Pace, is out of town this weekend on a father-daughter camping trip um, with Lily, so um, I'm filling in, so um, hopefully it's not, you know, too terribly, uh, you know, torturous for everyone. Um, if you would like, uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to the second letter of Peter. Even though we just read from Matthew chapter 17, our church family has been um, in Second Peter for the last several weeks, and we're going to continue looking at um, this letter that, as Jeremy's mentioned a couple times, is kind of one of those letters in the New Testament that often goes overlooked and ignored. And, you know, I guess we could probably speculate as to why. Um, but, you know, perhaps one of the reasons is for all of Peter's insistence that our faith is not esoteric and that it's easily um, defendable and reasonable and that um, God and Jesus like move in ordinary and as we just sung very mundane ways Peter writes very esoterically and so it's this weird tension of Peter trying to say to all of us hey this is plainly seen um, and yet he does it kind of in a in a strange way so this morning we're going to continue that as I was telling um, Ryan uh, just uh, a few moments ago I feel like the last few times that I've been up here I felt like I was rather long-winded so I'm going to try not to be that this morning. So just heads up, full disclosure, we're going to try to keep this um, kind of concise and to the point. <clears throat> so you may be wondering why we read a scene from Matthew chapter 17. Um, just a moment ago, Deidre read that for us. And um, hopefully that'll make sense as we get into the text this morning. Um, but as I often do, those of you that have heard me teach and preach before, I'd like to just begin with like a little thought exercise, a little thought experiment. A, like a series of questions to just kind of not only help us enter into this text together, um, but really just to get us all kind of thinking and prayerfully considering Second Peter in the same direction, all kind of on board and on the same page. Um, so hopefully that'll make sense as we go. Um, but I, I don't, my hope is that you don't really pay so much attention to what you believe the right answers to these questions to be but I really just want you to pay attention to how you react as I'm asking these questions that I'm about to ask. Like as these words show up in some of these questions, as these categories of thinking 
and belief kind of show up, I really just want you to pay attention to your knee-jerk reactions as I ask you these questions. Now, I have tons of assumptions about what of all of us um, kind of think the right questions or the right answers to these questions should be. Um, and as I said, I'm more interested um, in how you react. My guess is that um, as I ask these questions, um, that yes, if you were given enough time, that you could think through and kind of come to what you believe to be the correct answer. Um, but just to say it one more time, um, I think your knee-jerk reaction will, will be a better indicator, not only of what you think or what you believe, but really kind of how your life reflects what you claim to believe. Okay, so let's think about this passage that Deidre just read for us from Matthew chapter 17. And I'll just retell the story quickly. We have this story of Jesus on this mountain. Three of his disciples follow him up there. They get up there and they see Jesus standing next to Moses and Elijah, who I guess we're supposed to just kind of read as ghosts or specters, or is this a vision that, that they have, like this communal shared vision of these men that have been dead for, you know, in, one, in some case, thousand years or so? Jesus' face shines. His clothes are white as light. Peter says to him, hey, I'll make us some, I'll, I'll set up camp, you know, clearly Moses and Elijah, they're probably tired. They've had a long journey to get here, you know, like, we should make a tent for them and have everybody a place to stay. Suddenly a cloud comes, a voice speaks from heaven, says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples fall down. They're utterly terrified. What is happening? Jesus bends down to them, says, chill out. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid. They look up. It's only Jesus there. So this story as Deidre read for us and as I just retold, here's the questions that I wanted to begin with. What do you call what we just read? What is that? What I just retold? And this isn't rhetorical. You don't have to, or it is rhetorical. You don't actually have to answer um, back. Like, how did you receive this group of words that we just read? Was it a story? If it's a story, what kind of story? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Again, pay attention to your reactions. Is this a literary story or a literal story? Is it allegorical? Is it a fable or some kind of myth? Is it historical? Is it factual? Is it scientific? Is it true? Now, without getting too bogged down, um, and hopefully as I, make, as I raise this complication, hopefully by the end of today it'll make sense why I do so. Um, but let me just say this. When we ask these kinds of questions and we talk about and use these categories when engaging scripture, there's a sense in which it's all actually quite beside the point. These were not the categories that the ancients used to validate and shore up the credibility of religious claims. So when they told these stories, this isn't even how they were thinking about it. Not primarily, anyways. Again, 
Hopefully that'll make sense why I raised that complication. Um, that's a conversation for an entirely another time. But I say that because there is also a sense in which this is precisely the way that early Christians were thinking about these stories. In the case of Second Peter, um, one of the ways that they were thinking about claims of truth or historicity or facticity or whether or not it was allegorical or a myth had a lot to do, in the case of Second Peter, with whether or not Jesus was returning, whether or not he was coming back. So just put yourself in their shoes, the early church. Either they've been told directly by disciples who, are li- who were alive when Jesus was on the earth, or they've been told secondhand by his followers, another generation of Christians, they have been told that he was coming back and he was returning very soon. That's how they understood it. And so you can imagine that as the days and the months and the years went by, and still Jesus has not returned, they began to kind of wonder, like, what's going on with that? And so if you know anything about first, second century history, you know that it wasn't exactly an exciting time for Christians. There was a lot going on. They were going through a lot, experiencing a lot. And so as life kind of got difficult and mounted up on them, they began to kind of wonder, Jesus said he was coming back, but where is he? And the more they doubted his return, they began to kind of doubt the stories they had been told about him. So to kind of translate this from that time into our present context, let me say it like this and see if any of this sounds familiar. You might imagine them saying something like this. Hey, considering everything that's gone on over the last couple of years, all the stuff that we've been through, like if Jesus was coming back, like now would be the time, right? And so the more life got hard and the more they doubted his return, the more they doubted all the stuff they had been told about him, all the history that they had been told and told about this man and his life and his death, and his resurrection. And in many ways, as I'm sure you all know, um, these are actually the kinds of questions that every new generation of Christians kind of have to answer for themselves. Not by themselves, which we'll get to in a minute, but every new generation kind of has to wrestle through these questions on their own, or not on their own, but for themselves. And it's these kind of questions that Peter is addressing in in his second letter. So Jeremy will have a lot more to say about the void that these questions open up and the way that some like, well, the language Peter uses is false teachings kind of show up and try to answer those questions um, for the early church and still do so today. Um, But this morning, we're just going to kind of prime our minds for kind of where Peter's going and help us kind of think um, briefly um, about what's at stake with these kinds of questions. And regardless of what we know the right answers to such questions uh, to be, um, this morning we're just going to kind of um, allow Scripture to speak, of us, speak to us and perhaps um, notice the ways, that, the ways that we actually are living our lives betray a bit of what we believe these right answers to be. Of course, this is why Peter, if you've been with us, um, began chapter 1 of this letter with these pretty grand moral exhortations about the ways that we ought to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. Because there seems to be this assumption that it's not merely intellectual assent to a right series of questions in a doctrinal pop quiz that is really what we're after here, 
but we're after the way that we live, choices we make, and how we kind of move through life. Okay, so let's pick up where we left off last week. We'll begin in chapter 1, 2 Peter, and we're going to start reading in verse 16. We're just going to read through to the end of the chapter. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you do well pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this was not some well... We thank you that this was not put together just merely by men, but that you authored it. We thank you that in some wild mystery that is hard to get our heads around, you invited these men into the process with you and that they wrote as themselves with their own personalities and the uniqueness of their character and their thinking to allow you to communicate what you want us to know. And so, Lord, we just we thank you for your word this morning, that it speaks still today. Thank you for the word that is Jesus Christ. I pray that over the next couple of moments, and we would see how the ways that we read Scripture, the way that we read and interpret our world, and the way that we read and interpret our very lives, all is seen in the light of Jesus in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so hopefully you're already kind of realizing why I asked you those questions and this very kind of odd and strange like list of questions kind of got us all thinking about scripture, what it is, what it does. In verse 16, Peter says, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. Now, some of your translations may have that rendered as stories or um, fables or tales, maybe, even in some translations. The Greek word, though, is actually uh, mythos, or muthos. And it's where we get our word myth. So now, why is it that Peter feels like he needs to insist to the church that he's writing to that the stories of Jesus are not myth? Some of you may have even wondered, if you've been with us the last several weeks, why it is that, in virtue, I think all three messages Jeremy's mentioned Greek myth of some sort or another as we've been talking about Second Peter. It might have even felt strange. I, mean, I thought, well, this is a weird connection. Why are we talking about Plato when we're talking about Second um, Peter? What does this have to do with anything? But as this verse suggests, there's actually 
a real connection. This was the world in which the New Testament letters were written. And Peter insists that contrary to the popular ways that people thought during during that time, um, that the story of Jesus is not a myth. It is categorically different. Because as I, as I said, um, in that time and place, myth was really kind of the, the path of least resistance. Like everything just kind of funneled into myth at some point. And this kind of for good reason. If you know anything about the ancient world, myths, um, can, um, they're, they're load-bearing. Like they can carry a lot of cultural and social and religious weight. And so all of the early civilizations, all were founded, grounded, and got kind of their their whole worldview from myth. So let's just talk about myth quickly, um, and this will kind of set us up where we're going. But um, I kind of pulled this from a couple different places, various scholars of myth. Myth usually does this. It usually explains and defines our origin, where we come from, our identity, who we are, our purpose, what we are for, our morality, how we behave, and the very meaning of life, why we exist. This is kind of what myths did, and as I'll argue in a moment, still do to this day. And so if you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense that as Jesus came onto the scene, it, it, it only makes sense. If this is how myths functioned and what they do, then you know some really smart people would get together and allegorize and mythologize the stories of Jesus. And this is into this world and into this way of thinking is what Peter is writing. <clears throat> and still, if you, um, if you think about it, one of the most popular and common objections to our faith, to Christianity, still to this day, is that it's just another myth. This, this hasn't gone away. Most people won't really articulate it quite like this. They won't say it quite as explicitly, but for all practical purposes, one of the most common objections to to our faith, or really just all religious claims of supernatural experience or anything like that, they all basically boil down to, well, you, it's just another myth, right? Like, it's just, we've, we've gotten past that. Like, we're not, we're modern people. We're civilized. We don't really believe that stuff anymore. It's all just myth. Again, most people won't say it quite so, you know, explicitly, but most people, unthinking, deny the claims of Christianity for this reason. So now, before we kind of raise our fists and do that thing we like to do, where we kind of draw a line in the sand and say, okay, church people over here, um, non-church people over there, and kind of point the finger across that line and try to act as if this only really matters to the unbelieving world, for lack of a better way of saying it, we need to remember that Peter is writing to the church. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's writing to um, probably a, a circuit of churches, but he's writing to the church. So the false teachers that he's going to talk about in chapter 2, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, these were not secularized, unbelieving, um, non-Christian people. These were people who claimed to follow Jesus. And so Peter addresses an ideological and practical belief that's actually beginning to get traction in the church. This is the way that the people that are following Jesus or trying to follow Jesus together this is kind of how their hearts and their minds and their lives are starting to orient a little bit different to what they originally had been told. 
So I just submit to you that if we're not careful, we don't pay attention, as we've just been told to do, that we can easily find ourselves swept away in a tide of what we'll just call mythological thinking. Or as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, be careful that you're not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, so, of course, no one um, actually believes in the gods of ancient Greece anymore. That's probably goes without saying, so we don't have to really worry about any of us confusing the stories of Jesus with the stories of Zeus or Hercules or Aphrodite or anything like that. In fact, some of you may find all of this way too intellectual and just so far removed from everyday life that you feel like it's a big waste of time. Uh, the, the study of the Christian encounter with Greek mythology just feels way too academic and way too intellectual. Like, what does this have to do with anything? But I argue, if we just slow down, take a minute to really reflect on our lives and the world that we live in, our culture, our society, the things that we hold to and the ways that we live our lives, that um, we'll notice that actually these myths and mythological way of thinking is actually not that far removed that we, as we might be. So, exhibit one. I, uh, I argue, or exhibit one, yeah. Soulmates. The myth of soulmates is kind of silly, a silly one, but, you know, whatever. Um, this is the idea that there is only one person in the universe for you to love and perhaps marry. That you are fated to find the one person in all of the universe to love and to marry. I, I'm sorry to tell you that this is a myth. This is actually something that Plato came up with. This is actually um, told in the myths of, uh, of Eros and the Greek god um, uh, Aphrodite. And that, um, just to help kind of land it a little bit more for us, the god of Eros in Greek mythology eventually became the god of Cupid in Roman mythology. And so, maybe some of you don't believe that, but... Um, just think about how that's influenced the way that you've thought about courting someone you like, married, marriage, all of those things. Exhibit two. Um, so this one may be a ruffle a few more feathers, but the American dream. So this is um, the idea that you can be anything that you want, that you can do anything that you want, that really the sky is the limit. Oxford Dictionary um, defines it as the ideal by which Equality of opportunity is available to any American, allowing the highest aspiration and goals to be achieved. This, too, is a myth handed down from Greek mythology. This was the myth of Themis, god of justice. Exhibit number three, and, and I'm hoping that as we kind of continue going through these examples that you'll start to see how um, this is just the air that we breathe, that we live these myths out all the time whether we're aware of them or not. Exhibit three, consumerism. This is the idea that if you just get enough stuff, if you just get enough experiences or enough good ideas even, enough entertainment, enough pleasure, then you will be happy. This, again, handed down from the Greeks. This is the myth of hedon, where we get our word hedonism, is the, the god of pleasure. Exhibit four, 
individualism. This is the idea that the best life is one that is independent, self-reliant, self-sufficient, autonomous, and ultimately self-expressive. Again, this myth is the myth of narcissists, where we get our word narcissism. If you're familiar with the myth, the myth of narcissists is there was this man, he was so raptured by his own beauty that he was walking along the side of a lake, looked down, saw his own reflection, and couldn't look away because he loved it so much. He was so in love with himself that he couldn't look away from his own reflection. So he died there because he couldn't leave. He was so in love with himself. Okay, so exhibit five. Again, just kind of, these will probably get more and more um, abrasive as we go. Uh, we'll call this the techno-scientific myth. And again, um, this isn't meant to be political. Uh, that's next. But um, basically, the techno-scientific myth says that if we just get enough technology, we just get enough science, we just get enough invention, that we can solve all of the world's problems. Better living through chemistry, you might say. This is the myth of Elon Musk. No, that's not, that's a joke, but... Um, the Greek myth that this is attached to would be, you actually have a couple you can choose from, but um, the Greek myth of Hephaestus, I don't know if anybody knows that, but um, he shows up in Marvel comics and movies and all over the place. But he was the god of fire. He lived under the ground in a forge, and he would make weapons, he would make um, shields, and he would do things that were very inventive um, and innovative. And then you have another myth that kind of ties to this too, is the myth of Prometheus, which may be a little bit more popular to us, but... Um, Prometheus was the god who gave mankind fire. And the other god said, this isn't a good idea. I don't think they're ready for this. I don't think they can handle this. It's, gonna end, it's not going to end well. But he did it anyways, and the myth ends. Uh, it's pretty bad how things turn out for him. And then lastly, again, uh, this one is, I guess, a bit political, but not as you might think. This is the political myth. And this takes a couple of forms on the right and left, respectively. So it's, it's the myth of progress, um, or even the myth of like kind of a fundamental liberal conservatism. I, I don't really know how to say it, but on both sides of the political aisle, the myth goes like this. All of our problems are of a political nature, and if we just get our politics right, we can fix everything. And of course, this is the modern-day myth of the Greek gods Artemis and Apollo, and these were twin children of Zeus. So Zeus had two children, well, he had more than two children, but these two were twins, and interesting and quite different than how things are today. Um, although these two children saw things wildly different, had wildly, uh, wildly different takes on life, um, they actually got along pretty well, and they actually worked together, not um, against each other. But the idea was still the same, that we can just fix things with our politics. Um, everything, will get, everything will get better. There's a lot more we could mention. I know that feels like maybe that was too many. Like, one would have been enough, Chaz. But um, there's a lot more that we could have mentioned. But I hope that you see that maybe you won't say these things explicitly. Maybe you don't actually think through them in these terms. But that this is the cultural, social air that we breathe. Um, if any of you are familiar with David Foster Wallace, he has that cool thing that he says where, like, two fish are swimming along and an older fish comes by, and um, he goes, how's the water? And the two fish keep swimming, and the one fish says to the other fish, what's water? And that's kind of us. 
We don't really even know how pervasive these ways of thinking and, more importantly, living actually are for us. These are things that we've inherited. And just, again, to not do that thing where we draw a line and point at all the non-Christians over there, um, we have plenty of our own Christian myths, too. Um, we have pro- pro- like proprietary you know, um, things that only Christians actually believe that are just not true, don't square with Scripture. And I definitely didn't want to ruffle feathers by bringing any of those up, but I will just say most of those are less than 150 years old or so. So anything that's been you know, kind of thought up in this century, it's probably some kind. Okay, um, so someone says, I'm imagining being all of you standing or sitting there and you're thinking, wow, you took a lot of artistic license with this word myth and you've kind of stretched it and made it kind of mean things and um, you've done um, a lot of, taken a lot of creative liberty by talking about myth here. Um, Maybe, maybe not. But bear with me. Um, I do want to say quickly before we move on though that... um, I don't find all these things to be bad, and I don't think you do either. There's, it's good to fall in love. It's good to find your own individual um, creative expression in life. You are unique. You are made uniquely in the image of God. Politics are good. Technology is good. Science is good. That's not the point that we're making. Myths actually always kind of typically start out after something good, and they do a really good job of explaining some otherwise um, really complex uh, or misunderstood reality of human life, human soul. They come from ideas that are usually really well intended, but ultimately, and as Jeremy's mentioned a few times already as we've looked at Second Peter, what ends up happening is they just play into our desires. Myths ultimately just give us exactly what we want. And the problem with that, and you don't need me to tell you this, is that we don't always know what we want, and we don't always know how to like, you know, arbitrate between the competing desires in our own soul. We're confused, we're mixed up about these things, but myths don't care. They just give us whatever we want, and they inevitably make promises that they can't keep. So let's just think back quickly to how we described myths earlier. I'm not going to go through them again, but we'll just put them on the screen. Remember, this is what myths usually did and still do today. And so as we think about these terms, individualism, consumerism, all the things that I um, raised a minute ago, they rise to the level of myth when they begin to do this. That's where they go wrong. When they begin to have such a comprehensive take on the world for us that um, they can't bear the weight of that. <clears throat> How's everybody doing? Are we good? We're, we're, um, we're about halfway through, I think, but... I want to kind of check in, see if everybody's doing okay. So there's another more subtle but more dangerous way that we confuse the, the gospel with myth. And this may be, um, that was really just more of a kind of contextual exercise to get us to kind of step into what, how myths work in our lives still today. I think what we're about to talk about may be a little bit more on the nose with what Peter has in mind. <clears throat> Let me explain. So the Greek and Roman myths in particular, um, which obviously were the ones that Peter was most familiar with, these are the ones that the early church was most familiar with, um, they all were built on these really basic 
um, have fundamental, like these three values, these three premises. They began with the Homeric epics, so you all know Homer, he wrote Iliad and the Odyssey. They begin there, but then they pervade Greek mythology through and through. Um, and all the mythological stories were all driven and crafted and built out of these basic um, values, these understandings, really about what life was all about. This is how the Greeks thought about life itself. And these values were these three. Honor, vengeance, and life as agonistic. Honor, vengeance, and just this, the idea that life is a fight, always and forever. That is how Greek mythology works. You might call these mythological values or heroic values, but all of the myths revolved around these basic tropes, honor, vengeance, life as agonistic. And they made up for the basic and most fundamental building blocks of myth. And therefore, the cultures and the societies that were founded on these myths also found in these three ideas, honor, vengeance, life as agonistic, their meaning, their purpose, and um, what life is all about. Honor was the goal. If someone questioned or undermined your honor, vengeance was the acceptable and default response. And all of life was assumed to be a fight. Always in the midst of conflict, always in the midst of struggle. Honor was achieved via conflict, vengeance was executed in the fight, and the whole cycle repeats itself. Fight for honor, fight for vengeance, life is a fight. Repeat. And this is the kind of world that myths created. A place where the gods fight other gods and they fight men. A place where men fight other men and fight the gods. Where everyone thirsts and lusts after honor and where vengeance is the default posture when that honor is threatened. <clears throat> So now here's where it, I think it gets interesting for you and I, that if we take a moment and we can be honest, although we would never say it quite so explicitly as that, this is still today how we get through life. We're the hero. We're the main character. The story is all about me. This is my quest, my journey, my story. I'm always at the center of the action. Everyone else is just a supporting character. Or worse, they're an enemy. They're a rival. We can be honest, we still to this day assume that all of life is a fight. It's a competition, it's a struggle. Obviously, it's no longer on a literal battlefield. We don't fight with swords, shields. But we take the fight, the struggle, into our workplaces, into our careers, into the social sphere, even into our homes and into our spiritual development, and we fight, strive, and we work really, really hard. There's always a struggle. There's always some opposition out there, just this ambiguous, unnamed opposition that we're facing. Always some obstacle to overcome. Something is always wrong in need of fixing. Always in conflict with something or someone. And we go about desperately trying to keep our sense of honor, maintain our sense of honor. We don't call it that anymore. Now honor comes by way of wealth, our money, material possessions, 
or career advancement or prestige or likes and followers. Or again, in the spiritual life, even as our maturity or um, just how we want others to perceive us. And the moment we feel that honor slipping out of our hands, the moment we feel it threatened, we seek vengeance. And again, it doesn't look quite as, you know, uncivilized as maybe it did in the first century. But we go about making people into rivals. And Jeremy's talked about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, so what I'm about to say kind of assumes that you've heard some of that. But we desire what they have. They've taken my honor or they have more honor than me. They have more of what I want. And so I desire. And that's how vengeance plays out. So we get to work, we compete with them, we fight with them, we use force or manipulation, we try to chip away their honor, or maybe we're just passive-aggressive. But either way, we fight. We say hurtful things or lash out in anger. And then, again, the cycle repeats. We get back to work, fighting, striving, get what is ours. And this is the American way. You fight for what you want, you take what you want at all costs, because in whatever sphere of life, whether at work, in your career, at home, as we raise our families, in the larger society, in our politics, and again, um, this may be uh, kind of an abstract way to say it, but and even in our own souls, in how we think about our relationship with God, we see life essentially and fundamentally as a fight and a struggle for honor and a fight and a struggle for vengeance. And if you, don't, if you don't believe me, you can just take a moment. These values get played out in every aspect of our society. In our, in our careers, in our schools, in our politics, in our advertising, in the sports that we play, in the sports that we watch, in our leadership paradigms, and the way that we raise our families all assume this way of thinking. They're in the, it's in the movies we see, the television shows we watch. It's even in the very way that we study art in like literature and film, right? We cannot even conceive of a story unless there is a protagonist and a what? An antagonist. We don't even understand story apart from this value system. And so what ends up happening is we read our lives this way. We are the protagonist. Everyone and everything else is the antagonist. They all become rivals. They're in our way. So we treat them accordingly. Again, none of you, none of us would ever say it like this. We would never use these terms or say it so bluntly. But let me ask you, what is it that drives you? What is the fundamental premise of your life? Is it that you have received, as Peter told us in verses 1 through 4, that you have all that you need in Jesus? That you have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness? Or is there some other basic understanding of yourself and what life is all about that kind of pushes you and pulls you along in life? What, at the core of who you are, motivates you to reach for the next rung on the career ladder? What causes you to compare your family with the family next door? Why do you feel so self-conscious, so unsatisfied, so anxious, so discontented, so restless? 
Is this the li- is this life in the kingdom of God? Is this the life that Jesus gave us? Is this the way we ought to approach life, relationship, our relationship with God, our spirituality? Is this the life that Jesus gives? It seems to me that this is the exact opposite of what Jesus came to give us. In fact, it was probably honor and vengeance and fight that put Jesus on the cross in the first place. A Roman court and a Jewish tribunal crucified Jesus because their honor had been drawn into question, and as an act of vengeance, they took it out on a man from Nazareth. So surely when Jesus came and said, this is, or the kingdom of God is at hand, he meant something different. Humility, meekness, not honor. Love of enemy and sacrificial love, not vengeance. Peace, rest, joy, not a fight. So I also understand that life has its struggles. And I actually think Christ City Church here, I think we actually do a pretty good job about being honest with the idea that life is hard. We do have a real enemy. Jesus calls the adversary. And so life definitely has moments where it's anything but peaceful and it feels like a fight. But hear me, there's a, there's a world of difference between seeing life as fundamentally and basically at its ground a fight. That's drastically different than seeing your life in the kingdom of God in Jesus as a place of joy and peace with moments of a fight. The world of difference to conceive of life as essentially a struggle and a fight for honor and vengeance, and the difference of seeing it as essentially and fundamentally a life of rest and peace with little moments of struggle here. So, exhibit one I offer from John chapter 16. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Exhibit 2, John 10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Exhibit 3, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. From Luke 8. And so, this perhaps is why Peter says, You do well, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. Wasn't that a weird line when we read it? You wonder what that meant? That was a strange line. Maybe C.S. Lewis is helpful. He says this He says, I believe in Christianity, I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it but because by it, I see everything else. Because by it, I see everything else. And so, maybe this is what Peter has in mind, and this is why he relates this story of the Mount of Transfiguration. He begins by saying, Jesus has given us everything that we need. That was verses 1 through 4. 
And so the way that you see life now, the way that you see other people, the way that you see yourself, you see all of this in and through Jesus. So remember our list from earlier that we talked about with myth. Our origin, our identity, our purpose, moral code, the meaning of life. Does Jesus answer these questions for you? Do you live your life, all of it, by the light of Jesus? This is probably why Peter brings up the transfiguration in the first place. I mean, why not remind them of the resurrection? Why talk about the, the transfiguration? Maybe it's because what Peter understood that moment to, to be was Jesus reinterpreting all of the stories that Peter had grown up with. He reinterprets the Mosaic Law. He reinterprets the prophetic tradition. And he shows Peter that now everything that you know about yourself, about the world that you live in, should be ran through the lens of Jesus. He interprets not only the stories of the Old Testament, not only the prophetic tradition, but as we all know and believe, Jesus begins to reinterpret the story of the whole world. And that's why he says, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. So, um, in closing, I should say this. I've actually resisted um, the temptation all morning to say something like this. Um, I've tried not to say that the story of Jesus is the true myth. I know some of you have probably heard this before or are fans of of, um, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, and he was kind of popular for saying, like, Jesus is the true myth. Some of you may be familiar with that. And I've kind of resisted saying it quite like that, and um, there's nothing wrong with that. But I I really hope, um, and I think this is what Peter's getting at, that the story of Jesus isn't just a true myth. It doesn't distinguish itself from other myths just by um, the fact that it's true. There's more to it than that. And I think those of you that have had an encounter with the living Christ, who have walked and tried to follow Jesus for any amount of time, know that your relationship and how you come to understand the gospel is more profound um, than just merely that it's true. The story of Jesus doesn't bow to our ideas about truth or myth. The very intelligibility of truth bows to Jesus. He says, I am the truth. We can even know truth because of Jesus. The very intelligibility of truth and of life and of story ultimately is held together in Jesus. We do not follow cleverly devised myth. Instead, We see everything in the light of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that um, in the light of Jesus, we get to see um, the Father. And that in Jesus, we have all that pertains to life and godliness. And that in Jesus, the stories of our lives, the story of this world all make sense. Lord, um, I think that's enough for this morning, Lord. I don't, I don't need to pray um, self-consciously. or um, I just want to say that we love you. I thank you for this time to be together. pray that your word has been an encouragement and that um, 
anything that I might have said that wasn't would fall away. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I just wanted to share this. So this is a, from the Passion Translation. I thought that was a really cool, really cool just translation of, our, of this passage we did today. This is, again, Second Peter.